we're on solid ground if we stick to what the passage actually says and how the angel gives Daniel the help that he needs to have understanding. Podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are our friends Tracy. Good morning, part two. Part two. And Amy. I'm still here. Amy is here. And Karen. Do you have a mouthful of toast still? No, I I, uh, I was prepared because you went everybody else first. So, hi. <laughs> That's just funny because I think uh, a while back, Karen berated me for, for getting her when she had a mouthful of cantaloupe or something like that. So. <laughs> so, so I ref- I refrained from embarrassing Karen on this episode. You like how except I didn't for, embarrass you, Karen? For that thing where you spelled out the whole thing from before. Great. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to think of your feelings. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, okay. So, just so uh, I don't know, it might be interesting to our to our listeners. We're we're recording part two of Daniel Seven today following immediately after we recorded part one. So we're in the same day. And the reason, more of the reason I'm pointing that out here is because while we were recording our last episode, something really exciting for my household happened. My son texted in. He had his final check ride for multi-engine uh, uh, pilot training. And he is now a licensed commercial multi-engine pilot. Oh, man, that's nice. wonderful. Yes, nice. and so that that en- <laughs> I know God. You know, it's funny though. He's been going through all this, and the part that has worried me the most hasn't been his flying. It has been driving to the airport every day. <laughs> <laughs> he has been on an intense training regimen for the since he started in I want to say November. No, October. So he started in October last year and has been hammering it hard and um gone through all of his training there and and he has finally this is the last of it this is the end of it he now can officially go and uh, uh start applying for some some uh flight jobs he can't do airline yet that's his ultimate goal uh, and that's mostly because of his age and he still has to get a lot of hours under his belt before they'll even look at him but uh, he can he can officially get work as uh, as a commercial pilot with multi multi engine airplanes, and so that is super cool, and I'm super proud of him for for following up on that and um, going no around right? uh, going the route to to be able to do something that he really <laughs> wanted to do. And um, the last steps were this last step was a little was a little trying for him. He didn't um, he didn't succeed immediately, but but he stuck with it dealt with uh, a trainer or what not a trainer but the person who uh was evaluating him on the on the uh this last step was uh maybe a little hard on him and and uh he yeah he didn't pass the first time but he got it he did it and uh so he's going to be hopefully flying the skies uh very soon and uh so i don't know very proud of him very exciting and uh, yeah it's really super cool so, so congratulations to him. Yeah. This is like the terror that a new parent feels when their child gets behind the vehicle of their car to start mm. practicing. Yeah. Like times, <laughs> times a million. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a little weird to think that uh, my son, my firstborn, has been hurtling through the skies in a tube of steel, held up by nothing but air. Um, <laughs> that is uh, that is a very very strange, very strange feeling. Uh, so, World physics. Yeah, physics. Yeah, <laughs> stuff that uh, I don't entirely understand, but is is super cool. So. Yeah, at any rate, exciting, fascinating, and uh, so happy for him there. So congratulations to Xander. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into our discussion here. Uh, so we'll, we'll back up here with a little bit of context. This is a we're going to be talking today about a vision that Daniel received during the first year of Belshazzar's reign. You might remember Belshazzar being the one who was in charge of Babylon at the time uh, when we saw the writing happen on the wall and he had had his weird, he had been having his crazy party uh, and, and being rather disrespectful to the culture and faith of of the Israelites, the uh, the children of Israel, I guess I should call them, because uh, more specifically, this would have been people from Judah and Jerusalem, and we've seen that whole split of the kingdom into two with Israel and Judah. And so Daniel being brought in from uh, from Judah early on with others and brought into the, essentially, I guess, the court of Babylon and subsequently uh, gaining prominence within the kingdom of Babylon as, I don't know, essentially a servant. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know if slave is quite the right aspect here, but he definitely, he is, he's found himself in a position of authority where you wouldn't normally expect it to happen when you've been taken captive, taken to another, to another nation. And <laughs> now he finds himself in a, in a very prominent uh, influential position in the kingdom of Babylon. And so as he's having, the, he's had this vision uh, during the first year of, of Belshazzar where he saw a lot of things. And so I'll do a little review here of what he saw. He saw four beasts coming out of the sea. The first was like a lion with eagle's wings. The second was like a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. The third was like a leopard with four wings and four heads. And the fourth was what he described as a dreadful and terrible beast with iron teeth and ten horns. Uh, I think there might have even been some bronze claws involved there, which I may not have written down. And may, I might be conflating that with another with another part of prophecy. I don't I, I'm not sure. But he saw this little a little horn come up, replace three of the horns. And this little horn had eyes of a man. And it was speaking pompous words. And then he saw uh, this vision of the ancient of days coming and sitting down on a throne. And we had an interesting discussion of what all that meant. Um, I think we kind of landed on the idea that this was was God's throne being put down in place of other thrones that maybe were representing the kingdoms of the world here. And then the Son of Man being brought to the ancient of days. He's given dominion. All people serve him, and he has a kingdom that's never destroyed. So we get into the second half now of Daniel 7, and Daniel is expressing here 
he's the way he prayed. He puts it in the new King James. Anyway, he says, I was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me. Uh, now, I don't know if this specifically means that he didn't understand the vision. I think that maybe is part of it because we did talk about how Daniel has had the ability <clears throat> to interpret dreams before as God revealed it to him. They weren't his dreams. It was Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Um, it was the vision of the of the handwriting on the wall. And Daniel was brought in because he was recognized as maybe having a special connection and having an ability to do that. Um, Tracy, I think you were trying to say something. Yep. You know, I think this was just like we were saying a little bit earlier in part one is that this could be just information overload. It's, you know, that's a lot to take in. And especially, too, if it's not something you, you know, you're seeing things that you've never seen before. You're trying to put them into a language or or some kind of understanding for yourself that you just can't fathom at that point. So, you know, I wonder if it, a lot of it was just overload. I, you know, Lord, I'm just not understanding at this point. And it's so much information, you know, trying to write it down, trying to be specific and clear and concise. It's like, I think it was just a lot for a person. Yeah. Cause it, you know, as, as we look at the way he words, the things he's writing down, he says it was like a leopard. It was like a bear. You know, so he's not he's I don't think anyway, I don't think he's seeing things that specifically correlate to things in a literal way that we would see. But he's seeing things that have him thinking of other things and he's trying to describe them to us or to anybody who's reading his account. He's trying to describe it in a way that can make it understandable, because like Tracy's saying, he's just seeing something that just doesn't totally make sense to him. Maybe he had some concept that this is the, uh, you know, uh, that this is similar to what he's seen before from these other dreams. Maybe not. Maybe he's just going, I don't know. I saw this thing and I don't really know. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that there is sort of a, whoa aspect, you know, like there's a sense in which Daniel is, you know, we can say all those things, but if you were in the moment, you'd have just been like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's kind of funny, because we tend to think of prophets as like having it all together and understanding everything and, you know, there being an, an authority. We got to remember, these are just human beings, too, that for some reason, God has chosen them to 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 be in these positions. Is it because of their relationship with God? Probably they're they have made themselves, I guess, maybe and maybe that's not even the right way to say it. They are in they but they are in some way more in tune with God's will than I guess maybe the average person. And, you know, there's lots of different interpretations of the word prophet, because we tend to think of a prophet as somebody who tells the future. But the word also can kind of be interpreted as teacher. So prophets can be somebody who has a special insight. They can be somebody who sees visions of the future. Sometimes they're seeing visions of what's happening at the moment, but they clearly seem to have some special relationship with God that most of us don't seem to attain. Well, as you were speaking, I was just thinking that it isn't, uh, necessarily because the because of the inherent goodness of the prophet because I do think mm. about Jonah and I think you know he was ready to judge those people and let them burn 
Mm-hmm. And, and so there is a very prominent aspect of just as the Lord wills, he chooses to speak to this person or that person. And we don't know necessarily why. Now, in Daniel's case, Daniel is very righteous and trying very hard to follow the Lord. Um, but there are times when God appears to speak to someone who's less than honorable. Mm-hmm. Well, like Daniel, too, he's not he's not showing Daniel at all. He's showing King Nebuchadnezzar, who oh, right, right. didn't even really... It seems like he was aware of of God and aware of Daniel's God, but not necessarily a follower of Daniel's God, not trying to uphold the 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 principles of Daniel's God. I mean, he a lot of times he even refers to him as Daniel's God, not just his God. It isn't until later in his life that he recognizes God's authority. And even then, I think we had some question of how much so he recognized the authority. He definitely seemed to come to a point where he recognized that God had ultimate authority. Yeah. But I don't even know if it was considered, if we could safely say that he recognized God as the only God, but more like he saw him as, uh, you know, like the the supreme God, maybe. So, so yeah, the 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 God's delivery of visions to. Who he chooses, I guess, I guess it's up to us to, or up to him to decide who and how he's going to, how he's going to do that. So as we jump into these following verses, one of the things that really stands out to me is just the fact that, you know, like we talked about in the previous podcast, people have pet interpretations. Like they think certain things based on what current events are or things that they think they see in history. But the scripture is very clear that right now an angel is explaining things to Daniel. And and one of the things we had talked about, I think Tracy had talked quite a bit about verse 2. Um, in verse 17, it says, These great beasts which you saw are four kingdoms which shall arise out of the earth. And I, I think that, you know, just as we move into the interpretation, we can see the fact that we can we're on solid ground. If we stick to what the passage actually says and how the angel gives Daniel the help that he needs to have understanding. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, that's something that I've really tried to stick with, too, with our with the entirety of the podcast is to look at what it's saying, trying, trying, which is not always that easy, but trying to leave our preconceptions aside uh, and just letting the scripture say what it's going to say. Because a lot of times we can let our perceptions get in the way. If we try to cherry pick things, if we try to put, you know, the quote unquote, what I've always believed in into things, we can come to, I think we can come to a conclusion that that the Bible is not pointing, isn't pointing out. And so, yes. Um, so, yes, we do want to let the bible interpret itself yeah and daniel you know daniel here as this as this second part is beginning he is very clearly he's troubled he's troubled he doesn't understand what he saw he he's uh he's got questions and he's still in vision as the way i'm taking this and so he sees someone standing nearby i take this to be an angel and asked the angel, uh, basically, what is happening? What What is this that he saw? 
And that angel does say, as we've already alluded to in, in, pre, in the previous episode, the four beasts are four kingdoms. And so this is where we this is where we can kind of come to the idea then that this is correlating with Daniel chapter two, where when we saw the image with the head of gold, arms and chest of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron and feet of mixed <laughs> iron and clay, we can we can we can start to see some of that correlation happening here. And I think at this point, maybe Daniel recognizes that because we don't get a lot about the three beasts correlating with uh, with those first three kingdoms. But Daniel is very interested in that fourth beast. Well, and that's and he and he even says why he says it's because it's different from all the others. Mm hmm. That's the one he really couldn't explain. Huh? That's the one he really couldn't explain. He couldn't put it into words what he was seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the part of it that had him the most... um, Perplexed. Perplexed, yeah. So maybe he did have some concept. Maybe he was already considering, you know, these probably are... He might have already been thinking that maybe these, these probably are kingdoms. Maybe not. But if he did, and then he saw this fourth one being so frightening, maybe that's what he was concerned about the most. So I really like how um, Daniel gets to be in the heavenly court. So in verse 15, he says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me. And gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. So now we have earth. Didn't before we have sea? In yes. verse 3 it says four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. So now it says rise from the earth. Does that just mean our earth? It seems like a. if it's symbolic, it's, it's contradictory. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, we are, you know, I think we're very specifically being given the interpretation rather than just the vision. Okay, so this is literal. Okay. I think so. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Okay, and then he goes into what he's curious about. So he knows who the first, he knows who the first three are. And it's the fourth one that stands out. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others, which had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Well, that's a little terrifying. That is a long reign. So if if we know from Daniel 2 that the fourth kingdom was Rome, then this is something connected with Rome, right? And so we can talk about what that looks like. What do you guys what do you guys think about all that? These details that show up. We know it's Rome, so how do all these details fit in? 
and and I think that's a very important point because you're I, I feel like you are supposed to look at those details and they're given for a reason just like you know the the initial statue had the 10 toes and then that you know terrifying beast ends up having 10 horns and now this one horn like he's giving those details for a reason yeah and you know the, those those similarities now that we see that these are the 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 four kingdoms and we can recognize that these others are the progression of babylon to medo persia which we talked about you know medo persia you know rising up on one side and you know one part of the medes and the persians was stronger than the other he had the ribs in his mouth and we saw that we talked about how um those were like three do we want to call them kingdoms i guess that medo persia took over what was it lydia babylon and what was the fourth one or third one egypt egypt, egypt. So we can see that in history uh, that progresses into Greece with the with the leopard headed uh, leopard with wings with wings and four heads. And so we we saw the correlation there with how uh, and we're going to get more into that. I think when we get to our next chapter, but we saw that correlation where we're talking about a swift animal. Leopards are very swift wings represents even even uh, speed four heads. Uh, we talked about, was it the four... Four generals that it broke the, up to? The four generals of Alexander the Great. Uh, I'm not awesome with any of that history. I think some of you might be a little better with that than me. Um, uh, let's see, I think I saw a hand with Amy first, and then we'll get to Karen. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt your train of thought, though. Well, no, it's fine. I'm just going through how we see. We've seen, we, we can see that ev eventually... This one leads to Rome as well, because we've seen that if they're kingdoms, assuming it's starting with Babylon, which is seems logical to me, um, because we've had the correlation with the with the the image before with the head of gold starting with Babylon. If we can make that correlation that this is another version of the same image, we get to eventually know understanding that this next kingdom in line must be rome because mm -hmm. it's it's what comes next it's just what chronologically comes next in the timeline so so but go ahead with your thought there well my thought was just that um we can know something very specific about this little horn and that's that it does as karen pointed out it grows out of the last beast like it's actually growing out of the body of the last beast and so it is clearly something that comes out of the roman empire mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. trying to remember here does it say here that the that the horns yes it does chapter 24 it says that the 10 horns are 10 kings yeah um well that's i mean that's what i was gonna do was this next this next next two verses he gave me this explanation the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth it will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. Okay? So, if you if you look, you've got the Lombards, the Anglo-Saxons, and these are the early tribes. These are the early tribes of Europe. The Lombards, the Anglo-Saxons, the Heruli, the Burgundians, the Suevi, the Vandals, the Franks, the Huns, the Ostrogoths, and the Visigoths. And if you look back at early maps of Europe, that's who was there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, I, I talked about this a little bit when we talked about chapter two. 
because I jumped ahead a little bit. But uh, as we look at those, we can see how some of those correlate to what we have still today. So we had the Visigoths, which were in the region of what would be modern day Spain. The Anglo-Saxons, of course, we would relate those to modern day England. The Franks, that one's not too hard. That's France. The, uh, uh, and I'm probably mispronouncing half of these, but the Alemanni would be in modern day Germany. The Burgundians in modern-day Switzerland. The Lombards uh, would be Italy. And the Suevi uh, would be Portugal. Um, just, just a quick note. Um, there's a little bit of debate among historians about whether it's the Huns or the Alemanni. Okay. So, Huns. like, the well, list that I was reading from had the Huns. The list that you are reading from has the Alemanni. Huh. So, the Huns... That was more. And I think the argument, I think, right? I'm no historian, but I think that the argument is that the Huns burned out early. So maybe they weren't one of the originals. Okay. Because in my mind, the Huns were more. Mongolian. Were what? Mongolian, yeah. Mongolian? Yeah. So that to me is more in uh, Asia Mm -hmm. than Europe. Uh, obviously, we know that the Huns were a, were a major factor. I mean, they were the whole reason that China built the wall. They say uh, that a quarter of Europe tests with Hun bloodlines in them. Oh, interesting. Interesting. That's, wasn't that at one time, like, early on considered Euro-Asia? Yes. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, well, so, just, so just so you know, there's yeah, debate among sure. scholars. And I think it depends, you know, exactly where in the timeline and what territory you're trying to qualify and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Amy, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I guess my only thought is uh, I have gotten into detailed discussions about this before, and I I think people get bogged down in the thought. And the important thing to remember, in my opinion, is that Europe turns into a massive world power, but Europe is controlled by Roman law, Roman thought. Western civilization is based upon you know, Roman, uh, everything about our previous culture, you know, you take any Western civilization class and they usually start with Rome. And so then I think the division of the kingdoms then becomes, you know, the Holy Roman empire and things like that. And so if we can, most people are not used to thinking in those terms. And so when we define these various people groups that were all over Europe, I guess, I just don't want to get bogged down in that when what I really think is important is that these are the 10 toes. These are mm-hmm. the 10 horns. I don't know. I can't even finish sentences apparently, but yes, that's what, <laughs> that was my thought. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a better job than me with it, Amy, because I am, I, I don't know this world history all that well. I've, I've, I've learned bits and pieces of it over, over time. And I have learned these things about the, the horns and the, the toes and it, it has always been my understanding and interpretation that we're talking more Europe than uh, than Asia and that Roman Empire. What's that Roman Empire? I mean, that spread all over the place. But it, to me, it always seemed like it was more Europe, not so much Asia. So that's uh, that's my limited take on it. So when I was listing those names off, People might have noticed that I left out three, the Hurrieli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. And that's because at some point in 
uh, and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna need the historians of the group to to clear some of this up. But at some point in Roman uh, Empire history, those three disappeared. Yeah. So actually, that's what I was going to talk about, and then you gave me a segue. <laughs> so thank you. Um, so the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths were all what we now call Aryans. And so the Aryans were people, groups who had embraced Christianity in a different form. And right. that form was that they believed that Christ was the chosen one and the Messiah, but not actually the son of God, not a deity and not in himself a self-existent being. And so that Arianism led them to this conflict with, um, with the Orthodox Catholic Church at the time. And eventually led to some political takeovers um, like by Justinian and they would they were wiping these people out for theological reasons which is very interesting um, and Gibbon describes a lot of it in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire you know he talks about the fact that a lot of the political intrigue that's occurring in the sixth century has to do with theology and, 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 you know, we're not used to that. I mean, we look back on history and we go, wow, people killed each other over points of theology. That's weird. Um, but they definitely did. And these people were, were wiped out. I did have something to add to that. I don't mean to interrupt, but oh, go ahead. To, with those three, they were saying, too, that their way of thinking, they didn't really believe in the Trinity. And then they didn't subscribe to the papacy at all in Rome. That right. was the one big thing they didn't didn't um, agree on in that, which made him separate out of those, what was it, the ten heads, basically. Mm. Right. So that maybe leads us into a little bit of an, I don't know, maybe it's an elephant in the room where it hasn't, we haven't quite spelled it out. But because we are talking about, we're talking about the religious influence we're talking about the, you know, we're talking about the kingdom of God, that succession of kings that eventually leads to uh, Christ's kingdom. We've got it. We've got to be looking also into the religious aspects of these things. And it's no secret at all that the papacy, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, was very, very influential in Roman uh, culture and history. So, I, you know, I'm that whole Aryan stuff that was uh, kind of new to me. I didn't know, I didn't know that history at all. So uh, that I found that interesting. So a couple of years ago, I was able to go on a um, Reformation tour, and while we were um, touring down in Italy, we went to visit the grave of Theodoric, and he was the king of the Ostrogoths, and he was such an interesting character to me because, like, he believed in in baptism by immersion. Um, he's like a warlord, right? He's a he's a barbarian warlord who believes in baptism by immersion and who also at one point had stated that he would not engage in esoteric discussions of the nature of the deity, which is essentially what's happening with this question of Arianism versus Orthodox Trinitarianism, blah, 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 right? Um, and And Theodoric was... Very interesting to me because he refused to be involved in the discussion. Like he was like, you can't know something like that. You don't. You don't really understand. Um, and so I just I found that kind of intriguing that he was willing to say, mm, "I'm pretty sure I don't know uh, the the true answer to that." Whereas at that time in history, 
um, the Orthodox faith was saying you will adhere to Trinitarianism or, or will kill you. Mm. So it's a fascinating time in history. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, so as we're looking at this beast, then we know is Rome. And then we know we know because the angel told us that we have ten horns that represent kings, kingdoms within the kingdom, if you want to call it that. And we see this one rise up and displace three others. I guess we've already alluded to the idea that this would be, I'm trying to be delicate here, maybe I don't need to be so delicate, uh, but we've alluded to the idea that this little horn coming up, this little ruler coming up within the greater kingdom as the papacy, because that's that's just historically the way things worked out. All of that theological discussion uh, is interesting because we tend to subscribe to the Trinitarian view, like I believe in the Trinity, um, and yet it was also a time when the Orthodox Church was using a point of theology to seize political power. And that to me is what made it different. Like it's diverse from the others in that it is using the power of the state to control uh, what people think and believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the fourth beast is identified as different from the other beasts, which is why Daniel spends so much time asking about it. And then even within that fourth beast, the little horn that comes up and displaces three other horns is different from the earlier ones. So that to me tells me that he derives his power from a different place. So if we already know that this, that the fourth beast as a whole is Rome, then you have to look at what went on in the Roman Empire and amongst those 10 early nations, and you see one that comes up and combines church and state. So to me, this is where it gets interesting because like Amy was saying, you're using the power of the state to compel thought, but specifically you're compelling religious thought. And it says, and to follow along with that and sort of give flesh to that idea, it says in verse 25, he will speak against the most high and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his time for a time, times and half a time. So this this beast is different, even this small horn is different, even within a beast that is different, because he derives his power and he exercises his power in a completely different governmental mechanism, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I think too, I don't know, maybe just giving it a different perspective, but I totally agree with what you're saying. But if we look at it historically, when the when the papacy came in, People were known for their physical dominance. That's how you're getting these world powers, where now it's not that anymore. It's They don't have an army. The papacy does not have a formal army to go after people and conquer nations. They're doing it from a different perspective or a different angle now. And that's how they're combining that church and state to have influence over the world. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole different yeah. way of looking at it. It's a whole it. different yeah. mechanisms of war. Yeah. yeah. Secular Rome was a beast. Like it it was a power to be reckoned with. Like the way that they did things and it wasn't all bad either. Old Roman roads that they built. Like I don't know if you guys know this but Rome uh spent some time 
uh, right after, gosh, what was it? It was like 20, 20 AD, 40 AD, somewhere in there, like really, really early. Rome spent some time trying to get their kingdom to expand all the way up into what is now the Great uh, um, Great Britain. So there's two. Right. So all the way up in Scotland, there are two distinct landmarks and they're walls that were built and they were built by by the Roman emperor. So and they're like they're still standing. Wall. So some of these ancient Roman roads, they're still there. Some of these ancient Roman whatnots, they're still there. And so, you know, the Romans, they used aqueducts for their water. They had all kinds of things that they did that were way more advanced. So when they conquered other nations, it wasn't all bad. I mean, nobody wants to be conquered. Nobody wants to be broken with iron teeth, right? And trampled down and all of that stuff. But one of the ways that Rome did this was simply by being so advanced. The stuff that they built, some of it still stands today. And that's pretty that's pretty stunning. Mm -hmm. So then you get to, um, what was that guy's name? Was it uh, Const uh, Constantine, Emperor mm -hmm. Constantine? And then he becomes converted. And he wants to, so this is still a secular nation. Like up until now, this is just the fourth beast, right? Then Constantine becomes converted. He becomes a Christian. He wants to get everybody involved in Christianity, but he wants to do it kind of through their beliefs, but mostly through their behaviors. So at that point in time, there's this whole like history of the world thing where you've got the followers of Christ. And I believe by this time they were known as Christians. Um, uh, that phrase came out of Antioch. So originally uh, Christ followers were referred to as the way. But eventually, it said, "Wow, Paul references that." Where is it? Antioch, where somebody yeah, decides Antioch. to call them Christians, mm -hmm. yeah. and so from then on, they're called Christians, little Christs, right? And so, Constantine becomes a Christian. He he wants the pagans to come to church, and so instead of converting the pagans, right? Instead of saying supporting mission work to educate and have people convert by free will, he does this a little bit sneakier version where he combines the two religions. He combines the outward behaviors of Christians and he winds the traditions and the rules together with what he wants the pagans to do. So for example, the Christians are going to church on Sabbath. And you can find this in historical documents. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. The Christians are going to church on Sabbath, which is Saturday, which is the seventh day of the week, which is set up as of the uh, Ten Commandments, right? It was, it was a reminder. Like, remember, this was set up at creation, and you're supposed to be doing it this way. All right, so that's our written reminder. Before that, it was just kind of understood, but it's in Exodus at the Ten Commandments when the Israelites come out of Egypt and they don't remember how they're supposed to be acting. That's when God writes the Ten Commandments and says, here, here are the basic ten rules for your lives. Do this. So they're still doing it. The Christians are still doing this. Fast forward to Constantine's time. 
But the pagan worship also celebrates <coughs> on the weekend, but they celebrate on the sun's day, on Sunday. And so Constantine combines the two. He just says, no, 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 we're all going to go to church. We're going to go to, we're going to go to church. So he brings religious symbology into pagan worship and he brings pagan symbology into Christian worship and he just combines the two. And this is where the dilution, this is where the power, the source of the power gets, in my estimation, this is just me talking, sneaky. This is where it gets sneaky is the truth becomes diluted with just a little bit, like we're all here to serve Christ but we're not quite going to follow everything he says. We're going to do these extra things. We're just going to do these extra things, and I'm doing it for a good cause because I want to catch the pagans' attention where they stand. I'm not going to go to their homes and try to change everything they think and how they do things. I'm just going to take the worship services that they go to already, and I'm going to make them Christian. And so a lot. this is where... This is where going to church on Sunday originated from. And this is where Christmas being on December 20, 25th comes from. And this is where Easter having symbols like rabbits and eggs and things like that, along with the Christian cross, right? Like if you stop and think about these things, things are blatantly pagan. So how do they get combined? It's Constantine, right? And he did it over a period of a number of years and he may have had the best of intentions. I don't know the man. I He may have had the best of intentions, but what he ended up doing was diluting Christianity into a mix of Christianity and paganism. And to me, that gets really, really sneaky. So when it says, okay, so when it says that he would speak against the Most High, oppress his holy people, try to change the set times and laws, right? When it says all that, it's talking about the conscious change of the day of worship, the slow transition of government to the church. In this case, it went to the church. Now, in, in modern day society, we are not ruled by the church, right? Like our, our, in America, which is where we are, our government is secular, right? They don't come down and say, hey, you need to go to church like this and you need to not go to church like that. And here are the beliefs that you need to hold. Nobody does that. But at this time in history, this is how it was. The governmental power was slowly handed over to the church in the form of the papacy until that became the main source of power around. And that's where things got really, really tricky. And by the way, that led into the Dark Ages and everything else. And anybody who knows anything about that knows that that is why when America was founded, separation of church and state was a founding pillar of that. Like, no, religion, religion does not, religion does not rule the huddled masses. The huddled masses are people of free will and they get to decide how and when they worship. Religious rule is for people who are religious. And they get to they get to worship as they choose. So that was one of the founding principles of America because because the long reaching effects of this in Europe were horrific. End of speech. <laughs> Good stuff and fascinating stuff. This is the these are all the parts of history that my my public school uh, education skipped right over. History was not it just was not really valued in my public school education. I don't shocking. Shocking. Maybe, you know what? Maybe yeah. as far as public school, I'm just gonna chime in here. 
it was a different history, not so much in depth with religious content removed. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I don't remember talking about ancient Rome, any of these things. At, at me, I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention that day or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but these things just were not, I just didn't, I just never, they never came across my, my, uh, my attention at all. And uh, so it's it's all very fascinating to me to see how this all this all lays out with what Daniel has been seeing, and and it's it seems pretty clear to me how as this interpretation lays out, and we see we see things uh, we see this rise of the of the holy the the, the holy Roman Empire within the Re- Roman Empire as a whole. That seems like a strange dichotomy of words there, but I think you get what I'm saying. Uh, we see that we see that power coming up within. It fits perfectly with what we're seeing in this uh, in this vision. So one of the identifying marks too, I think, is very specific in verse 25. He shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Think to change times and laws, as Karen talked about, and they shall be given into his hands uh, for a time, times, and the dividing of time. Um, and one of the things that I think we really need to talk about is the fact that it is a blasphemous power. Like to speak great words against the Most High would infer blasphemy, mm-hmm. and blasphemy is defined in the scriptures as. Uh, the prerogative to forgive sins. So there's a couple of texts in John 10, 33, and in Luke 5, 21. Those are both incidences where Jesus forgives sins. And the Pharisees are like, you can't do that. You're not mm. God. And, um, and he's showing his deity by claiming to be able to forgive sins. And so then in, on a negative side, this power that arises in the Middle Ages claims to be able to forgive sins, which is blasphemy. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah and so that's that's sort of implicit in that text yeah and i you know i don't know it this may be stuff for some of our listeners to be it may be a little hard for them to swallow maybe it's the first time you've heard this kind of thing uh, these are these are concepts that have been maybe until re up until recent times pretty common amongst uh, Protestant believers, um, and it kind of has spanned over many different denominations. And we've really made a, I think we've made a point here of not trying to disparage any denomination or even lift any one denomination up over another. We're just trying to say what the Bible says. Yeah, this and, isn't a denomination thing. This is a, yeah. this is a Ten Commandments and a projections of what will happen over the course of the world. That mm-hmm. has happened, and that we can track through history. Mm-hmm. And, and I think so, this it was just, denominations. I think too. Most importantly, I think I think I want it to be on my aspect of it. I want it to be a springboard for our thousands and thousands, and millions of listeners to <laughs> go out and and look and take a yeah. look. Grab the grab the history books. Grab your Bible and and you know dive in. Yeah. And what you'll find, by the way, just as a teaser, is that. Two days of worship per week were kept for several hundred years. The gradual process from, hey, let's get the pagans to come to church. We'll partially embrace their beliefs and they can partially embrace our beliefs. It went from that 
to, well, now we're really only going to do this kind of worship, to societal encouragement to only do this kind of worship, to finally passing laws of only this kind of worship, right? Like it was a very gradual process over generations and generations and generations of people. There was no one generation that saw the sudden transition of, we're going to take God's law and we're going to do this with it. And y'all are going to do it with me or you're out. It was nothing like that. It was a very slow seduction. And that right there should be a key mm, hair razor on the back of your neck to let you know how patient Satan is to accomplish his will, which is to deceive everyone that he can. And it can be done by people with the best of intentions. You know, if if we give Constantine the benefit of the doubt, yeah, let's I, give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. But in, you He's know, all excited he, about his new faith, and he wants to have new converts. Let's mm-hmm. go do it. Yep. And hey, come on. You know, and 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 let's be fair about something else here too. When this concept comes up, a lot of times people will say, "There's there's no rule against me going to church on Sunday," which is true. There's you know, but if you look at the Sabbath commandment. It doesn't say go to church on Sabbath. Nope. It's it's about it's about the day being special. It's about recognizing God as creator, recognizing God as redeemer. Uh, can you go to church on Sunday? Hey, why not? I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be here to tell you no. But but um, there has been a shift away from Sabbath to Sunday within the majority of christianity to accept now sunday being the holy day and sabbath is largely forgotten or even shunned so you know yeah subtle done with the best of intentions but we in this podcast would definitely argue that it was moving away from god's will i think a really important thing is to notice who is doing uh, the compulsion. And so what you're describing, Matt, is, you know, your live and let live attitude uh, is is actually what we want. And it's God's attitude. Like God is very clear about what his law is, but he's also very clear about free will. And individuals do get to, you know, make those kind of choices. And if you look at history, you find that there was this power that was building strength that became progressively more aggressive about what other people were doing. Like there's this story where Augustine, not St. Augustine of Hippo, but a a later character in the 300s, goes to Scotland and he goes to this little seminary, right? He's at a theological school. He goes to them. He says to them, you will keep Easter in a certain way. And they say, uh, you know, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to keep the biblical uh, we're going to celebrate the resurrection, but we're not going to do these other pagan rituals with it. And so he comes back with an army and kills 300 theology students um, because they won't obey concerning the keeping of Easter. And then, Matt, to what you were saying, you know, throughout history, it was these individuals who just wanted to put the scriptures in people's hands so that they could look for themselves. Those were the ones who got burned at the stake. You know, you you were in trouble for giving people the scriptures just so they could know just so they could understand for themselves, not because you were trying to force them to do something in particular, but so that they could know the Lord for themselves and obey him. 
And, um, and then one more thing you were saying, you know, this is a fairly common interpretation throughout history. Sir Isaac Newton held this interpretation. You know, there were lots of key characters throughout history who picked up the scriptures for themselves and read and understood that this power that was trying to compel others to do things a certain way um, was not functioning under the Lord's will. I, I have spent quite a bit of time in the past uh, digging into my family's, my family tree. And one of the things I found that was really, really interesting to me was that the first, um, the first traces of the Christian gospel showing up in Scotland, which is where my, a lot of my bloodline comes from, was in 37 AD. Now get your mind around that. The, the story of Christ made its way to what is now Scotland in 37 AD. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's bad. And so there was this, there, and, and of course it wasn't Scotland yet, I'm just using the modern reference, mm -hmm. but there, there was this group of diehard Christians who followed those traditional beliefs. All right, so then... Rome, you know, time passes, you know, uh, religious Rome sends out missionaries, Catholicism comes to Scotland, the Dark Ages are at a full roar. And yet, like Amy pointed out, there's always these, these little groups, these little seminaries of people who tow the line to the scriptures as they understand it. I was very pleased to find out that my ancestors on my mother's side were part of those. They were some of the diehards who clung to that line and resisted Catholicism with every fiber of their beings. And I was like, oh, I'm so proud of these people I've never known before. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. It's kind of cool. And it's an interesting thing. You know, it's um, this this is not a, a strange belief. Uh, this doesn't this. This is not what defines you being a Christian. The question is. How close do you get to God before you realize, you know, how how well do you get to know his word before you realize that it's been diluted a whole bunch with things that are part error? And, you know, for my part, I follow it as closely as I know how. That includes the Ten Commandments as they were written. And, and by the way, lest anybody here think that um, the text where it says, Mm, 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 mm. Uh, that this this little horn that came up shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and laws. Okay, well, that's a time. You know, that's a God-ordained time, that fourth commandment. But they also, this power also set up huge churches with statues that you would go and you would pray to. And you would pray to things that were carved images. You would pray to things other than God. You would go and you would kneel down before the statue of the Virgin Mary or whatever, and you would say your prayers and you would do your thing. And that is not how God ordained religion to work. We're not worshiping an intermediary. Our only intermediary is Jesus Christ. And he bridged human and divine so that we can do that directly. We don't have the Old Testament sanctuary process anymore where we have to approach through a priest. 
That was all symbolic until Jesus came. And now he's that priest. Now he's the continual bridge between humans and God. And we do not need anybody to go between us anymore. And so the the Roman faith has a huge emphasis on creating images and even praying to the images or holding your rosary while you pray, you know, and things like this. And one of the other things that the that this group did with the Ten Commandments was they completely removed the second commandment. It's gone. Mm. The one about creating about uh, do not create graven images or bow down to them. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they split the tenth commandment into two in order to still have ten. Like that is fundamental to Christian belief. Like if yeah. you're if you're a Christian, you only believe in God and you only pray to God. And you certainly aren't going to go and find a statue to confess your sins to or to pray to or to consider an intermediary. Mm-mm. You go to your father. Yeah. Yeah, and my understanding of a lot of those statues that were brought in, or not brought in, well, I guess, brought in, were actually recycled from the recycled Roman gods. And that's the way I, that's the way I see it. I think, uh, and some, you guys might be able to help me on this, but I think there's, there's, you know, statues that they say is Peter that was actually Apollo or things like this. Um, they were just recycled from, from, from Roman Roman religion and just brought in and well that was this but now it's this and they're yeah. still there so and it's a way to tie it all in you know mm-hmm. to to blur the lines to get that gray area yeah and it yeah. worked yeah so I'd wanted to point out that verse that Karen is referring to and it's in First um, Timothy chapter two uh, verse five for there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus and <clears throat> people may not be even aware that the Bible very specifically says that in almost like, you know, maybe God knew that this would come up again and that people would be tempted to seek mediators, like praying to all the saints, assuming that you have to ask Mary to pray for you, which is what doing the rosary is. You're asking Mary to pray to God for you. Um, And then a lot of people may not know about the Waldenses, but they were a group of people in the mountains of Italy. And one of the things they taught people was that prayer, a prayer spoken in a barn was as effective as one spoken in a church. And that was a heresy, according to the Church of the Middle Ages. And yet, you know, the Bible very clearly says that we can speak to our Heavenly Father whenever we want, that Christ has bought that privilege for us with his own blood, and that we are able to pray to our Heavenly Father. And I just think that's so important to point out, because because this teaching... You know, uh, of course, of course, of course, um, there the vast majority of believers throughout history have been Catholic believers. And so many, many of them love the Lord with all their hearts and trust him um, and are Christians, etc. But <clears throat> many of them have been taught that they cannot <clears throat> directly approach the Lord. And and we can. The mm-hmm. Bible teaches that we can come to God. Yeah, I, and you 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 hit on something there that is super important here for us to recognize, which is that nothing nothing we're talking about in this vision has to do with necessarily the people following. This is about the the, the authorities who who functioned this way, the the authorities that 
like we like we talk about brought in different ideas over time outside of scripture and and presented them as fact and then we see with the dark ages when people don't have scripture available to them and they're being forced to rely on what somebody else is telling them and it has all been set up at this point by as a political almost more political than than uh, religious, but they're using the religion to enforce their their political uh, ideologies, and sort of vice versa. But you get you get this Middle Ages church that then had a thumb over over its followers, and the followers had no recourse because they didn't they weren't able to look at scripture and compare and say that doesn't quite fit with what I was reading before. You know, what you're saying doesn't fit with what I'm reading. So thank God we got a point where, where scripture was made more available to everybody and we can look at it and apply these things and see how they fit with, with history. So the beautiful part of this to me is right here in our text for the, that we're studying. So the last couple of verses say, the court will sit and his, okay, so this is the little horn. The court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Right? Eventually, it's going to take heaven to do it. But eventually, we're going to get back to where? To true worship. And I, I personally believe that every denomination on the face of the earth, that you know, God will reach people's hearts. There will be people of all denominations there. And that in heaven, we will finally sort out the differences between what humans taught us and what our best human understanding led us to. And what God actually meant for us to have. People are like, oh, well, the Bible's been corrupted over the years, blah, blah, blah. There's all these different things going around. Well, if, if humans have diluted religion this much, or if Satan, let's call it what it is, if Satan has diluted religion this much, how am I supposed to ever know if I have the truth? You know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're the one that stands before God. If God puts a sin on your heart or a correction on your heart, follow his leading. And eventually, when you stand before God, he knows. He'll know. And there's, there's, you don't need to worry about, about whether a human, a human teaching is what led you astray. That won't be a concern. Your heart will be true to God, and God will lead you right where he needs you to be. And then in heaven, all of us will sit around with our mouths hanging open, getting our theology corrected, and learning how God actually wants us to do things. I guess one more thing thought for me was just the idea that, you know, this, these passages, uh, or this time frame is given, you know, that this power will rule. Let's see, they shall be given into his hand until the time times and the dividing of time. And this reference is given seven different times throughout scripture, this time frame, And in revelation, it keeps calling the rule of this power Babylon, which is a reference to the idea, not of the Babylon that Daniel had been in necessarily, but the old idea of Babylon, which is confusion. So um, the idea of there, you know, this power is causing confusion among people. They're not allowed to come to God. 
themselves. They're not allowed to approach the scriptures. There's this idea of working your salvation out by doing things like penance and pilgrimages and self-flagellation and all night prayer vigils, you know, this sort of thing. And, and so confusion begins to grow in the mind of the church because they have, they don't have the scriptures for themselves. And, and so I guess I just wanted to, you know, point out that seven times the scripture references that this power will rule for this long, long period of time and that it is a confusing power. Are we talking about a literal time frame with that? A time time because generally speaking, we think of um, we think of a uh, and maybe we've talked about it uh, within the podcast, but time being in reference to a year. So when we say time times and half a time, we're talking about three and a half years, like mm-hmm. uh, prophetic years. How is that correlating with what we're reading here right now? Um, so if you added up, well, if you if you went off of a Jewish calendar with its simple lunar days, so each month had only 30 days, you'd get a 360-day year. What would that be? A time times, so one time, two times, and then half a time. So if you add all those days together, you get 1,260 days or years And the reason that we would jump to the idea of years is that we have these other references, you know, in the scripture, uh, Ezekiel 4, 6, Numbers 14, 34. And then in Luke, actually, Jesus does something interesting with that idea as well. You know, I know that that's probably beyond what we want to talk about today, or is it what you want to talk about today, Matt? (laughs) Well, we're, Um, I don't know, we're we're, we're probably getting a little long here, but we could, we could briefly mention it because we will come back to this at some point. This, uh, was it, what would you say, 1260 years? Right. So if a time is 360 and times is two times, that's 720, and then a half a time would be 180 then that's how you get this first idea of 1260. But then, like I said, six other times in scripture, it shows up sometimes worded the same way. And sometimes it's like one time it's called, uh, let's see, Revelation 12 verse four. It talks about 42 months. And so sometimes it's worded as 1260 days. Other times it's worded as 42 months, but it's still, if you do the math, you keep coming up with 1260. And so you get this very long period of time during which this power has power. Yeah. Yeah. Over the consciences of people. Yeah. And so we probably don't need to go into all the specifics of that now because we will be talking about this again. Okay. Uh, and and but but we have the concept given here to Daniel to for this understanding. I don't know how much he understood this concept of of of, that, of those years, but it's inter, it's at least introduced here uh, of mm-hmm. like you say this long period of time. I think I think as we go through Daniel more, we'll even be giving us be given a starting point for that, as as I recall. But it is it is it is a fascinating it is a fascinating study. And if we just if we let scripture and history interpret it, I think we can fairly say that that this interpretation is pretty accurate. And I think maybe, you know, once we get past that and we get to the end of the chapter, maybe the most important thing for us to take away is that it's all given into that. It ends up with the everlasting kingdom. We don't need to worry a whole lot about 
this dragon beast. I'm calling it a dragon here because I think it correlates with stuff uh, later, uh, especially in Revelation. But we don't have to worry so much about that because we get the end story that the everlasting kingdom of the Most High is the one that will gain ultimate power. And everlasting means just that, everlasting. Matt? Yes. Uh, and just real quick, that's, I think, a really important point because I love studying this, and I think it's super exciting and interesting, and I want to know it, and I care about history, and, you know, I have nerdy tendencies. But mm -hmm. in reality, what matters is what you just said. Like, the big picture is the kingdom of God will be set up. And so as the world falls into this darkness, people are being assured that God was still in control, just like Daniel studied the prophecies of Jeremiah so that he could understand when his people were taken into captivity, he was like, okay, the Lord said this would only be for 70 years. And, um, and so he studies those prophecies to hold on to his hope. And, um, and then one more thing in Matthew 24, <clears throat> I think this is so key to understanding prophecy. Matthew 24, verse 25, simply says, behold, I have told you before. And so Jesus's purpose in giving us the prophecies, which he appeared to be interested in, was, though, simply to give us faith, to build our faith, give us courage in times of trouble and help us to understand that no matter what, he was still in control. Yeah. And that really is I think that really is the biggest point of prophecy, even the prophecies that tell the future. I don't think this is necessarily put here to put down anybody it's not here to 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 uh very specifically try to say that the the catholic church is bad i don't think that's the point at all because like uh, i believe as karen said when we get to heaven we're gonna we are gonna meet people from every denomination and it is my firm belief that we have so many denominations because people have discovered truths as times go on and those truths get get preserved within 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 those things and you know as they split off you know well we have this thing but that you know sometimes they sit there but then another denomination will come along and it's because they have discovered a truth and they're like we're going to sit here with this and and, and so by truth, and by truth you mean it might be a truth or it might just be a thing that they came up with on their own possibly because yeah. satan is the father of lies and i think particularly when truth movements arise he puts in extra time and effort to confuse those. He is yeah. the author of confusion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but so, I mean, none of this is to talk about anybody's sincerity. Uh, you know, God is going to judge our sincerity. God is going to judge, you know, where did where did we draw our lines? Uh, that's not for that's not for us to judge. But he's going to look into too that there's good sheep in every flock, almost like what you were alluding to before, is that, you know what? It's going to be that personal journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when, yep. you know, when, when, when I, I think, I think what we've been seeing is it's talking about a system that, that has, that has been, has been corrupted. I think even a lot of modern day uh, Catholics will recognize that the dark ages time was a bad time. The question now is have, you know, what has happened since that time? To bring to try to bring us out of of the damage that was done, so yeah, we're not talking about individuals, we're not talking about people, we're talking about systems here. Uh, well, and also, I mean, I've known a lot of a lot of Catholics over the years, and they 
they sort of smirk and shake their head at the idea that they need to confess their sins to a priest. Like mm-hmm. they don't, you know, they 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 continue to go to the church and they do whatever, but they but they have no investment. They don't believe that that's true. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's 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 what I'm trying to get at by saying that you know, God knows people's hearts. Yes. And, you know, in the end, his sheep know his voice and they'll go where he leads. And that is not our job to sort any of that out. Exactly. One of my favorite stories is when I was studying Luther, um, you know, Luther was riddled with guilt and shame and he was constantly doing works to try to earn his salvation. And one day his priest says to him, Martin, God is not angry with you. God loves you. And, you know, so here's this Catholic priest who is definitely steeped in the system, but who knows the Lord and who turns to this very troubled man and gives him a chance to say, oh, God loves me. And I just think that's such an interesting story because then Martin Luther goes on to be the father of the Reformation. So, yeah, yeah it's just they're yeah. definitely deaf. Well, like Jesus said, many sheep have I who are not of this fold. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And that's where we come to all dominion, serve and obey him. That's the ultimate takeaway is that everybody has the opportunity to come to Jesus, to follow him, follow in the best way they know how and trust that God knows our hearts, as has been what we have read over and over and again. His his intentions are to save as many of us as he can. Mm-hmm. And and that is going to happen in ways that you and I may not understand. We, we're going to get there and we're going to see people and go, what are you doing there? And they're probably, they might look at us and go, what are you doing here? So, <laughs> so, you know, some of us might be just as surprised that we're there as we are surprised that other people are there. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, so, but um, at any rate, very, very fascinating prophecy. So deep, so deep. We could probably talk about this. We could probably keep talking about this chapter for hours and hours and hours. And uh, it's been the subject of a lot of study. Um, it's been it's been an understood by people through through the centuries. I guess it's just a really really interesting uh, aspect of things that Daniel is seeing that will come after his lifetime. And we see how it has unfolded in our history. So I have one more really quick thing to add, and then my brain is done. Yeah. <laughs> so one of my favorite texts is 2 Peter 3, 9. And it, it, it springboards directly off of what we're talking about here. If you look back at the course of human history and you think, oh, my goodness, we're a mess. Look at the 20,000 different directions we've gone. Jesus, come get me, right? Here mm-hmm. you go. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that means you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. That's all of us. Like, if you think that God is in his heaven being patient with everyone but you, you're wrong. (laughs) His patience extends to every person on earth for a good reason, and he cannot come back until... Certain things have been met and and clarity. Every human has had a chance at clarity to make their choice the best they can. And 
if if we look at it and if we look at the the long play out of of prophecy and human history and we think that that's slowness to god that's patience because he wants as many of his children saved as possible yeah. amen yep absolutely yeah. absolutely okay well, I am definitely glad that we split this chapter into two parts because it's very clear that there was a lot to talk about with Daniel chapter seven. So listeners, I hope you got as much out of it as we did. You know, if you have any questions about it, we've got an email address. <laughs> and that's where I will segue into our into our closing here, because next week we'll start with Daniel eight. And so I'm going to encourage you to to read and study there. And uh, remember, while you're waiting for us, you can reach out to us at ATTB podcast at the adventure dot org. If anything we have said has uh, inspired you, if it has troubled you, if it uh, just gives you questions, we would love to have some interaction with you on it because we're not trying to press anything necessarily. We're just trying to let the word say what it says. So uh, feel free, feel free. You welcome to be invited to to reach out to us at that at that address, podcast at theadventure.org. Remember, you can look us up on Facebook. Please share the podcast with your friends and family and neighbors. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that we can reach you in your feed each and every week. And we absolutely look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.